Greetings, Ski Racing Tribe. You are listening to the first edition of Ski Racing Media's podcast, Tips and Tales, where our heads are in the World Cup, but our ears are always to the snow for anything alpine. We're going to follow the races, the news, and the newsmakers. I'm Steve Bruno, along with Scott Lyons, who I will introduce. Scott, longtime friend of mine. We grew up ski racing at Burke Mountain Academy, was a member of the U.S. development team back in the day, raced for Dartmouth College, and was widely known as having the hottest temper of, in all of alpine skiing, and now has been, for the last, what is it, five years, part of NBC's research team, that uh, he is the words behind many of the voices that you hear on the air. Welcome. Thanks, Steve. Uh, it's always good to hear about my temper. I love bringing that up. Um, I'm here with Steve Prino. I think everybody in the ski racing world in the United States knows who he is. Uh, he's been involved with calling ski racing in some form or another for the last 20 years. He also wrote for Ski Racing Magazine back in the day, and I mean back in the day. Um, and he's also, in my eyes, famous for backing out of the starting gate at Kitzbühel. <laughs> Which may be why... I'm sitting here today because who knows what would have happened if I had pushed out. Anyway, for our first edition uh, of this podcast, Tips and Tales, we will in large part discuss the greatest skier of all time. And we have one of the greatest skiers of all time uh, with us who we interviewed, Mark Giardelli, along with a man who knows the history of the sport his name is John Fry, among other things. He started the NASTAR, wrote for Ski, or excuse me, he was the editor of Ski Magazine back when the World Cup started. But with each edition of this podcast, we're going to cover what has happened to date. And since it's our first podcast, we're not going to go all the way back to 1966. We're just going to try and recap what's happened to this point of the year. We're going to have those interviews for you. And at the end of the podcast, we're going to give you our picks for the upcoming races. And with that, why don't you bring us up to speed? Give us your bullet points on what has impressed you so far this year with the women. Yeah, I think that the, you know, the high level takeaway right off the bat is Schifrin has established herself as at a minimum being adept uh, at speed. She obviously won in Lake Louise um, it was kind of unexpected in her fourth downhill to see her win. I think we were kind, kind of, of. Yeah, super <laughs> unexpected. Sorry, I didn't mean to understate things there. Uh, it was uh, eye-opening. And there is little doubt that there is going there are going to be times where, where she can compete for the podium in speed. Um, and that is got to put a little bit of fear into the field. I think... I th my guess is that a lot of the women felt like they could challenge her um, maybe on the speed side and sort of challenge her the overall that way. But if she's going to start winning downhills and potentially super Gs, um, that makes it much more difficult for, for her competitors. Um, Do you feel kind of like the women's – it hasn't really taken form outside of Schiffrin this year? Yeah. I mean, I think the other takeaway is that there hasn't been a real great rhythm to the season – um, part of that is weather. I think part of that is a lot of people coming back from injury and sort of reestablishing their, their, themselves on the World Cup. Um, so you're seeing people pop in there and then do poorly and then pop in there. Um, and some of the younger women who are, are sort of the door is open, they're sort of leaping up and jumping onto the podium. So it's been tricky to sort of predict what's going to happen and what's going on. And then on top of all that, you have Lindsey Vaughn, who crashes out in, in, in Lake Louise, looks, we all thought, like, ah, she's struggling right now. Um, she went over to Europe, and we were super, I think we all thought it would be lucky if she, it would be nice if she was top 10, so maybe see some of that speed back, and then she wins in Val d'Isere. So, and then the next day, she, today, she doesn't race because her knee hurts. So it's been, I guess, I guess the predictable part is it's been unpredictable. <laughs> and I would say the exact same thing of the men, you know, going back and some of the highlights for me that underscore how unpredictable it was. Dave Riding, opening race, didn't win because he crashed shy of the finish line, but he was victory bound in my eyes. That was cool to see. 
But then after that, you go to Lake Louise. For me, frankly, Lake Louise doesn't tell me anything about the season, so I'll just skip that altogether. Beaver Creek, Colorado. Creekmire takes advantage of good weather, so I'm not sure I got a sense of what's happening in the world of Super G. I, for sure, uh, much like your feelings for Lindsey Vaughn, really didn't think that Svindal was going to come back and win downhills. And I know you're not supposed to think that because he does it all the time, and somehow or another that seems to be a matter of course, but that is not to honor how difficult that is and how completely awesome he is. And he did it again uh, going uh, when the Men's World Cup moved over to Europe on the speed set. So I'm completely blown away by Svindal, but a little bit like Vaughn, we don't know how long he's going to last. He's already talking about taking some time off because his, his knee hurts. Uh, on the GS side, um, sure, Hirscher's winning now, and clearly he just won Alta Badia by a large margin, and we can all sit back and say, of course, he's one of the greatest GS skiers of all time, but he came into the season with no real training in a transitional year when they've gone from the 35-meter GS ski to the 30-meter GS ski. Everyone talked about needing the whole summer to figure it out. He did it inside of basically 10 days. So while we can say we expected him to win, I'm completely blown away that he's really established himself as the front runner in giant slalom and to a large degree now it seems like slalom, but that doesn't seem to have established any order. Looking in Val d'Isere, uh, you know, it was guys were going out. You had Stefano Gross, who was fast in the first run. So I'm not sure I am comfortable with the fact that Hirscher is the dominant force yet in slalom, but it appears to be, which completely stuns me. But with that, we've already talked about some of certainly the greatest skiers of this era, Lindsey Vaughn is on your list. And if you're listening to this, which obviously you are, <laughs> uh, you should take a read. Uh, Scott did an article for Ski Racing Media. It's Lion's Den, the greatest of all time. And you listed your top 10. Didn't include Michaela Schiffer, and she's a little bit young for that yet. But give me your top 10 before we go to the, to the interviews that we did with those guys. Um, I, Lindsay Vaughn's number one. I think, you know, the criteria that I used in general, there were a couple exceptions, but the criteria I used in general was you had to have 30 wins and you had to be good in all disciplines. And basically by good, I mean win. Um, and that was sort of the baseline I started from. I think longevity is definitely a factor um, on my list. To get over 30 wins, you have to be around for a while. Um, and I think the greatest of all time, like any sport, have long careers that overcome injuries. So my number one was Lindsey Vaughn. Number two was Mark Girardelli. Uh, number three was Bodie Miller. Um, and I know Bodie doesn't have quite the wins, but he has this amazing spread of wins across all disciplines. He's the only racer, male or female, to win uh, five or more, have five or more wins in each discipline. Number four was Anne-Marie Mosbrall. Um, Number five was Stenmark, which went over really well in Europe. They were very excited about my putting Stenmark fifth. They thought that was totally fair. Um, he obviously has 86 wins, but I think if you watch that guy ski a downhill, you would say, I don't think that's the greatest ever. It's okay. Right. Um, and then uh, six through ten is Zerbriggen, permanent Zerbriggen six. Franz Klammer is my major exception. He does not have 30 wins, and he does not have wins across all disciplines, obviously. But um, I think sort of the impact he had on the sport and his, his winning run in the 1976 Olympics, I think, is unparalleled in terms of drama, responding to pressure. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend taking a jaunt over to YouTube and watching that performance because it's amazing. Number eight. Um, Anya Pearson, number nine, Jean-Claude Keeley, and number 10, Herman Meyer. Um, Jean-Claude Keeley, as we're going to hear from John Fry, many people feel that was too far down the list, who saw him ski were around at that time, but I felt like longevity knocked him down a little bit, although his stats, which we discussed with John Fry, are amazing. And, and the reality is, 
you and I were not there watching the dawn of the World Cup. Television didn't really cover it. And so there's a sense of when we are in the moment, you know, part of the reason that we're having this conversation is because I have said from time to time that we might be in the greatest era of, say, giant slalom because you've got Ted Ligeti, Alexi Pantero, and Marcel Hirsch are all competing against each other, and people have taken exception with that. We tend not to have a great sense of history, particularly in this country, which is why we needed to go to John Fry, who, you know, for me, John Fry was there watching Jean-Claude Killy, had a close relationship with him. He was there at the dawn of the World Cup as the editor of Ski Magazine. He is now the editor of Skiing History Magazine. He started the NASDAR uh, and he also has a book out called The Story of Modern Skiing. So as far as anyone in this country, as far as I'm concerned, he is the institutional memory. And this is what he had to say about his number one. to read Scott's article on the greatest skier of all time. He puts Keeley down the list a little bit further. Where did you have him, Scott? I had him nine on the list. <laughs> um, I just, I feel, I feel like one of the, and I do agree, like those two seasons are amazing. I mean, he won 17 races out of 28 starts. I think he was on the podium 24 of the 28 races that he started um, on the World Cup. <clears throat> but I, I think longevity counts for something, and I know that his career, it, you have to look at his career differently because um, he skied prior to World Cup creation. But um, I do think that the people who are on the list in general, I, I kind of had you know, a minimum of 30 win World Cup wins in order to sort of qualify for my list. Um, I do think, I do agree with you, though, that I think a lot of people wouldn't include him on the list at all. I think people forget about how great he really was. Um, and he certainly, I mean, when you get into the top 10 greatest skiers of all time, you're putting kind of a fine point on things. But I do think longevity does count, and a certain number of wins... Um, is necessary to make my list at least. <laughs> With John, it's why yeah, we brought well, you in. That, as, as that, I mean, that is a, that is a, a, a difficulty. I, I agree with you. you. Historically, you have to look at the largest number of wins, but then you get into problems like with Denmark, who only won in slalom and giant slalom. He might have won a super G. I don't recall. No. Nope. But didn't compete in downhill at all, and yet holds the record. 
for the most World Cup wins. I would, in that sense, against Chile and Denmark, I would not but make Bodie Miller number three. But what was your reasoning behind that? Um, my reasoning behind Bodie was, um, he had you know he has two overall titles. Um, he also has the most even sort of spread of wins across all disciplines, and he's the only person to have won at least five times in each discipline, which I think really counts and bumps him up. Um, and then on top of that, I think, and this is, this, is, uh, this is where we get into a gray area of rating the greatest people of all time, but I think that I, on any given day when Bodie Miller was skiing his best, I don't think anybody in history would beat him. So if you took his fastest day of downhill, his fastest day of slalom, his fastest day of giant slalom, etc., I think those days top everybody else. Which is beautiful because there's no way to prove that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, John, where I'd love to have you weigh in as I mean, kind of the institutional memory of World Cup skiing, we're talking about the greatest all-around skier of all time. Stenmark certainly is on the tips of many people's tongues. He won three overall titles. Then the World Cup scoring system changed. Scott might contend that he should have won five because they, because they changed the scoring system in the middle of his career to work against him. Some others might say maybe he shouldn't have won any at all. And I'm taking the I'm playing Switzerland in this whole conversation, if you may have noticed. But I'm wondering where you stand on Stenmark and whether, as a slalom GS skier, the way the World Cup scoring system was originated, he should have won any titles, overall titles. Um, it's hard to say on that. Uh, what happened is that uh, sometime around 1972, or, or maybe it was 73 or 74, the uh, when the World Cup first started, you could only uh, win, you're only awarded World Cup points for your three best results in a discipline. So once, for instance, like Killy, you had won three downhills, you could compete in another downhill, but you weren't going to get a single extra World Cup points. You were to push the racer to go into giant slalom or slalom, or vice versa. If you won if you had won three slaloms, you weren't going to get any more points in it. So it pushed in that direction. Sometime around 1973 or 74, it went from three to five races, and things started to change. And during the 1970s, the World Cup was dominated by Gustavo Tenney, whose name, by the way, hasn't come up yet, but he was a marvelous champion, and Ingemar Stenmark. They, they dominated giant slalom. And then the, the fish struggled to find some way to to prevent specialists like that from winning, and, and they worked so hard at it that I think in it was 1979, the World Cup was won by a guy by the name of Peter Lucier, a Swiss, who won only one race during the entire winter. This this particular fact drives our Scott Lyons completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, and then, of course, uh, the other, then, then Sarah Lang said, well, the solution is we aren't giving speed skiers enough of a chance to uh, win the overall World Cup. So he, he had the idea for introducing Super G. And then uh, some, sometime in the late 70s, paper combines were added to the World Cup point scoring system. Like you could take, I think there were five combines and you could count three of them no racing done just with a combination of whatever result you had one at one meet in in downhill and slalom the variety of things were tried and finally by the early 90s it was all abandoned and it just went to a simple i think it was 1992 100 points went from 25 points for a world cup win to 100 points and everything counted and that's why it makes it so difficult today for people <clears throat> who are not familiar with the history of World Cup point scoring to be looking back and saying, you know, how come somebody won a thousand points in one season and Killy only won 225? But 
it's a, in my opinion, I've expressed this opinion previously. I really think it's unfortunate that skiing did not stay with the original formula so that we could look back over a long period of time and make it easier to make the kind of comparisons that we're trying to make now. No, it's a, and in fact, as you say this, I was not aware that Super G was introduced to the World Cup program in order to create balance between speed and tech. Nor did I know that the paper combined was also an effort by Serge Lang to try to balance out this problem that started when we had sort of specialists in the system. And now you're talking about an era, and correct me if I'm wrong, when Keeley was racing 17 races in a year, now upwards yeah. of 40. It's impossible to really maintain a high level across multiple disciplines when there's virtually no time whatsoever to stay proficient in any of those disciplines, certainly if you're going to be competing against a handful of specialists that do. Uh, it just seems that the calendar, to me, does not lend itself to sort of seek out the great all-around skiers like it did back in 1967. Well, that's right, and it was, but that was the ideal of the World Cup. Then it became more specialized, and and then the men, when uh, after Avery Brundage uh, stepped down as chairman of the IOC and Kalanen came in, shortly after that it became possible for racers to make money from skiing openly. Their money was channeled to their national federation. And... Uh, and uh, so that the specialties cups, the, the, the smaller crystal globes became more and more important. Who won the downhill? Who won the GS? It was easier for manufacturers to promote that in their advertising. And uh, if you were second or third in the overall, it kind of didn't, ha didn't have a lot of impact. I mean, winning the overall obviously was still a very big thing. And uh, but it wasn't helped by Peter Lucher's victory in 1979. <laughs> As I recall, you read the article that Scott wrote about yes, the greatest. I, wrote, I read it. Yes. Yeah, and it and was I... a surprise for me actually. Are you comfortable with number two? You think it's too low, or do you think it's no. too high? Uh, actually, I think uh, it's, it's too high for my opinion. I really feel honored that I'm anyway uh, among the top ten, but uh, people like Zurbriggen, Chocolate, Kili, Schranz, maybe also uh, Tony Seiler, but if you take only the World Cup racers, Herman Meyer, uh, and uh, there are a lot of really good racers. Uh, so I was really surprised that I was climbing the stairs so high. So I feel really honored. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, so, I mean, I think one of the reasons that you're so high is because you were able to win in every single discipline, which I think is important, and a lot, you know, some of the guys you just mentioned, like Meyer, didn't win in every single discipline. How do you feel about, you know, sort of, when you were racing, there was a lot of all-rounders who were competing in all disciplines, now it's much more specialized. How do you feel about... Um, the racers today and the specialization that goes on. I mean, the last one with retired with Bodie. That seems to be the end. The last one was definitely Bodie. It's exactly that's 10 years ago, I think, when he was good in slalom because he was always good in downhill and super G. And, uh, but uh, you are right. There are waves uh, from specialization and then all rounds, people like Kius and Amot, they really were able to do uh, races around. The guy like Benny Reich tried for several years to make a results in, in downhill, but didn't succeed. Um, so I think um, maybe for a lot of people, I, I hear it always that um, that a lot of people estimate all-round skiers very, very much. So the specialists are not so very, very uh, estimated than the all-round skiers because everybody knows it's much more difficult to win in slalom, GS and downhill than winning only in slalom and GS or only in super G and downhill. 
And um, maybe maybe you're right that the, 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 the all-round skiers are placed a little higher up because I really lost for sure a lot of slalom victories and GS victories because I tried so hard to be, become good in downhill. Don't you think the more important point is that you did all of this skiing in Solomon rear-entry boots? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for the for the people that have not are not familiar with the boot, it's a little bit like a plastic bucket with a couple of cables. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, uh, the boot was not that bad actually. Uh, I made some small modifications then with the orange Salomon boots, but uh, uh, but at the end, it was for sure a competitive boot at that time. When you when you say small modifications, you know there are those of us that tried that boot because of you, and you know we couldn't avoid cars in the parking lot with it. So what were you doing with that boot? You you were American. You cannot ski with boots like this. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> no, that was a joke. Um, we we made some um, some epoxy uh, and uh, we stabilized the, the liner and the interiors. We changed the, the sole, the base, the footbeds. But uh, otherwise, we didn't make a lot difference. Uh, so it was more uh, an adjustment of the technique also for this boot and. Uh, it worked out in, in downhill, in GS, in slalom, so I was happy. You, you know, uh, I don't want to go too far in this direction, but you were very much an innovator uh, when it came to equipment. For those people that remember the Derby Flex, you brought that into popularity. But also, I think the rules that exist today, where you cannot stack the boot too high, that all started from the developments that you were making, did it not? Still, a lot of modification. Uh, they are restricted in the height and in the in the radius, in the in the side cut of the skis. But uh, uh, I know I spoke with uh, with Marcel Hirscher and his father the, the other week in Val d'Isère. They have so many modifications of skis and adjustment by boots and bindings. I think they do it much more than I did in the past. But is it fair to say that? The rules that are in place now, where you cannot continue to stack yourself higher and higher on the ski, were a response to the developments that you made back in the 80s. No, I wouldn't say that. I think it's a normal evolution in this carving era, which uh, which uh, started around 16, 17 years ago. And it was a need to uh, make adjustments uh, from the height and from the boots and the, and the binding, because otherwise you couldn't handle the skis. Anyway, a lot of racers are not able to handle the skis still now because they are they have not enough power in the legs, in the body to, to keep on going until the end of the race. So we, as soon as they lose power, they, go, they lose also control of the, of the material. And you see it in, in a lot of races when they are difficult, that they really have problems to control this material. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned Marcel Hirsch's father, and we in the U.S. talk a lot about um, Eileen Schifrin, Michaela Schifrin's mother. You spent time traveling around the World Cup with your, your own father, and there's been a lot of great champions who have had their parents, mother or father, heavily involved with their career. Do you feel like that's an advantage? Was it an advantage for you? Yeah, for me it was the only chance. If it was an advantage or not, uh, I cannot talk about. But we were only a very small team, me, my father, and uh, a rep. So uh, we had not much choice to uh, to make changes there. Uh, I had to pay anyway everything by myself. Uh, there was no support, no financial support from the federation. So we had to pay everything by ourselves. And um, I think. Uh, uh, if, if this is an advantage or not for Michaela, <laughs> we, we rather talk with with me with, with with Kilian Albrecht or with with Michaela personally because I don't know the the, the mother of, of Michaela Schifrin, but she seems a very tough lady and uh, so far it works out 100%. Michaela is winning races after races in slalom in downhill this year. It's incredible. I'm one of her biggest fans. <laughs> <laughs> now, now let's get back to greatest of all time. How much more effective do you think you might have been if your uh, system was more like Hirscher, who has his father as an advocate, 
a coach, also uh, someone that works in some ways as a technician, but also with the support of the team, which you never had. Uh, and I talked to Hirsch at one point, he was thinking of going and skiing on his own because his mother is Dutch. He could have done it the same way you did, but ended up with the support of the team. Uh, I think um, the, the ideal situation would be to train alone and together with a team, like Hirschert is doing this, um, because you need, from time to time, you need uh, comparison with other racers uh, to really get sharp, especially in, in autumn before the races started. And that was one of my handicaps, that I never had a comparison before the races started. So the, the beginning of the seasons, very often, they, they started very bad. I lost two seconds a run because I was skiing nice, but not fast. Uh, not, I was not sharp enough. So uh, it took me a couple of races uh, until end of December, beginning of January, to find a real attitude of racing uh, to keep then the form until the spring. But uh, the, the early season usually was a big problem for me, and that call was caused definitely because I had no no time runs with the team with team members, and so so I think um, uh, if this training by all by myself this was more or less a handicap. Uh, but uh, at the end, I had not much other choice. <laughs> um, you know, the one thing again is we. Scott and I will both contend that you belong exactly where you are on that list as number two, in part uh, for the same rationale that Vaughn is on that list, number one. It's not because, say, Keeley was maybe the most efficient winner of all time. Certainly there's a lot to, of merit to the other skiers that you mentioned, but you, like Vaughn, were in it for the marathon through one injury after another and I, I don't have it right in front of me but it seemed like you missed many of the years that you were racing because you were injured uh, what is that what would you say that tally was yeah you're right maybe i was a little uh, too far on the edge i guess uh, sometimes too much on the on the risk and that was also caused mainly because we were such a small team because i had only my father on the slopes and uh, i got the information from a difficult downhill let's say from <laughs> quarter of a mile maybe uh, and uh, and uh, the, the other eight ninety percent of the downhill was blind because uh, the other teams they have 20 people on the slope uh, they uh, they inform the racers the trainers on the start what kind of conditions, how the light is, the, 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 the slope, uh, the pist and the wind, the sun, uh, the conditions of the snow and so. Uh, so the, the racers of the big team, they have so much more information, on, especially on the speed events, that this is definitely a big advantage, especially also to choose the right ski shortly because the because before you start the race, because the conditions, they change uh, sometimes very quickly and you have to decide very quickly on the start which material you choose for the certain run. And uh, these uh, possibilities I never had in this, uh, in this uh, situation. And uh, for sure that was, uh, uh, that was also a reason that I very often risked a little too much and uh, I injured myself, that's why. You know, it's interesting, just today, in the super, excuse me, in the downhill in Valgardena, yeah. uh, Svindal sat in the start, in the finish, with the lead. He got on the radio, didn't only call his teammates, but radioed up to the U.S. team. They, they tend to train together to offer his support, his advice. You never got that from your compatriots, your Austrian rivals during your era? No. What are you thinking? <laughs> if I asked them, uh, I got the wrong information. But, but uh, you know, uh, at the end, um, uh, I found out a very nice uh, trick how to get uh, at least some information because I pretended to do some concentration and I did it in uh, close to the Austrian coach so I could re uh, uh, listen to the radio. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, I guess you got to do what you can. You told me a wonderful story about the uh, the World Championships in Comontana in 1987, speaking of injuries, um, but uh, could you share with our audience the, the tale of your shoulder during that, uh, all those wins you had at that event? Don't remember me at this uh, situation. <laughs> it still hurts. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, no, but you have to tell the story. I mean, we talk about how tough Vaughn is, but our memories tend to be short in the world of World Cup skiing, and uh, sometimes we forget that there are a lot of tough characters like yourself in the past. So it was a dislocated shoulder. Am I, am I wrong about that during a training run? No, that was correct. I had already several dislocations during the early season, and uh, just by coincidence, I got a tip from uh, from a friend uh, with a special doctor who could treat the shoulder and fix the shoulder in a in a in a good way. But uh, uh, in Cromontana, the first training run of the downhill, the shoulder came out again at the first jump. It's a 40-50 meter jump. Uh, in the uh, half a minute after the start, Cree there, and I was landing with a dislocated shoulder, and it was so painful. And then the the, the doctor from the race uh, organization came, and he said, "Leave your arm. Uh, uh, don't don't. Uh, how to say? Uh, leave it uh, without tension, without at uh, least the muscles uh, loose." Uh, leave the muscles loose and he he stood with his foot into my uh, uh, shoulder and teared on my arm and um, uh, located the shoulder back in uh, I thought I, I was unconscious for a minute or two because the pain was so heavy so that was my first training run in Cromontana so then I had to call my special doctor he arrived the day after and treated me throughout these two weeks so I, I was lucky enough to handle this problem and win a gold and two silver that <laughs> that championships that was good I was never so lucky <laughs> going going back to the greatest of all time who if you were to say you your favorite or greatest skier of all time who who is your number one uh, I think um, uh, we cannot um, uh, avoid to uh, to say Ingemar Stenmark is the biggest uh, because he has so many wins and um, he was forced from the FIS to uh, follow different regulations uh, because um, he wins 13 races in 79 and the Swiss guy wins the World Cup with one victory. So I think that is something uh, which is really remarkable and uh, I always uh, estimated Ingemar as one of the biggest gentlemen I ever met and he is still gentlemen and uh, it's not all about what how many trophies you have how many trophies you have in in the cupboard at home it's also the, the question what kind of personality you have and that uh, i think ingemar was the biggest personality I ever met in the world Cup. that is high praise you have just made scott lyons very happy who has idolized you and ingemar stenmark and nothing makes him crazier than peter lusher winning the overall <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with I kind of wanted to put him one on the list, but when you watch Ingemar run the Hanenkam, it's hard to put him number one. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. He lost 10 or 12 seconds, I don't know. At least uh, I would, I, maybe I, I would beat him even now, you know, 20 years <laughs> after my... Yeah, yeah. But okay, that's, that's, that was maybe his biggest handicap, that he uh, tried to make Kitzbühel, or he made Kitzbühel, so... Uh, it was not the best uh, decision he did, uh, but uh, you know, uh, maybe, yeah, it's his decision. Uh, still, for me, Ingemar is. Uh, who, who, whom do you have at? The, you have Lindsay Vaughn at the number one, huh? Yes, she got you. She got you. Yes, yes uh, for for uh, I I only spoke about the man now, Lindsay. For sure, she won today, and uh, she's an incredible woman. I think. She is on the same level like Annemarie Moser Brühl. Uh, you have also to consider because in the time of Annemarie Moser in the 70s, there were less uh, less races in the season, and uh, uh, she had no Super G. I think if there would have been a Super G in the 70s, there would not be one Super G who wouldn't have been won by Annemarie Moser Brühl in that time. So that. Uh, uh, that is uh, incredible what what Annemarie did. So I think Lindsay is for sure on a, on a, on, a, on a similar level like Annemarie Moser Pröll, and uh, both are in front of me for sure. <laughs> it's funny because I talked to you. I talked to you in Beaver Creek, and you mentioned the name Gustavo Tony, and it seems to be the consensus of the people I talked to that uh, it was an. I definitely it was an oversight to leave him off the list. And I'm curious your thoughts on his skiing. It's someone 
I, I think we've forgotten about a little bit for some odd reason. He's not included on a lot of lists, but I think a lot of people who saw him ski think that he is, you know, one of the top five skiers of all time. Gustavo? Yes. yes uh, Gust Gustavo, for sure. In the early 70s, he was number one, uh, uh, but uh, then Ingemar is coming, and he was a complete different character of racer, you know? Gustavo, he was an elegant skier, but uh, he, I'm sure Gustavo trained, but he didn't train as hard as Ingemar. Ingemar trained the whole day. Uh, he told me one time, Ingemar, uh, I asked him, hey, what are you doing in, um, in, in, uh, during spring, summer, autumn in, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in Ternaby, in North Sweden? I said, listen, at my home it was always dark, so the only thing I could do day in, day out, it was training. So... <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, the answer of Ingemar, and uh, so uh, that was a complete different character of racer. Ingemar was really a high, a high-trained athlete, and nobody, not even Gustavo, with his talent, had a slight chance to beat a guy like Ingemar. So it was a different time. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's all what I can say. There are so many good racers uh, uh, that uh, should be considered, but. Um, as, as you know, I, I feel honored that I, I climbed the stairs so high. Yeah, well, we think you, we deserve it. We'll ask you one more question as we kind of look forward to the future of World Cup skiing. And you mentioned that the, how Stenmark and thereafter the level of training intensity has gone up and up and up. Is it possible anymore, and you have some good insights into the life of Marcel Hirscher, to be an effective all-around skier. That means all the disciplines anymore on the World Cup. Oh yeah, I think that's, uh, that's possible. And um, I even think that uh, Marcel Hirscher would have a chance to be top 10 uh, in downhills, maybe not winning, but uh, he seems to, uh, to be able to, uh, to ski with high speed. And, uh, but, uh, he is too light for downhill. I think he has about 80 kilos, uh, and that's not enough uh, for really beating guys like Swindal or uh, Jansrud or uh, the Austrians or the Italians. They are for the for the flat sections. You need some kind of weight, and uh, otherwise you will lose too much in the flat sections. And downhills they are not always steep. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but otherwise, besides also Ted Ligeti. Uh, sometimes I was hoping that he is entering into downhill, coming back in slalom because he made some good slaloms when he was younger, but he didn't succeed. And uh, now I think the time is over and he should concentrate on GS. But uh, otherwise, in the moment, I don't see anybody who has the chance to do slalom as well as downhill. How great was that? And, and what, what I take away from that is try and figure out who the best skier in the world is you got to know their story and and coming right off the story of mark giordelli i immediately want to put him one because you realize how hard it was for him to do what he did with a team of three and that's something i guess i knew at the time but it's i'd forgotten and that's why these exercises are so great um, I have to share the one story of when I first met Mark Giordelli, and I was very disappointed that he didn't remember this. It was my first ever World Cup in Europe, and I was supposed to be at the Europa Cup, which was already over my head. Somehow or another, I ended up in Garmisch, Germany, where they had poured, in the words of the media there, 50,000 liters of water in the first turn. I remember doing the calculations, trying to figure out exactly how much that was, how many bathtubs, and... What I figured out was that it was a sheet of ice, and I owned two pair of skis. I had a pair of trainers, which were rock skis essentially, a pair of racers, and I had zero, zero traction on the first gate. Like I was afraid to push out and inspect the course, and decided to. I let loose. I started accelerating. There was no inspection going on because I was just trying to self-arrest, and there was my hero, and his dad, Mark Giordelli and Helmut Giordelli. And I collided with them and then continued to slide on past. So the one thing I learned from that moment is that I do not belong among the top ten. 
but it's a decent story. But, you know, what he said there was, you know, he thinks that Stenmark belongs on there because of the kind of person Stenmark was. But the other thing that really kind of solidified my thoughts on who the greatest skiers of all time were was that Ingemar Stenmark changing the level of training required to be an elite athlete. And for that reason, and John Fry is not going to like this, but, you know, that even though that Jean-Claude Keeley was incredibly efficient uh, and no doubt brilliant in his two or three years on the World Cup, A, he showed up on the World Cup already in his prime and retired uh, and went to the Pro Tour because that's where he was able to make money at that time. So we only saw him at his absolute best for three years. Could he have gone the distance? And the other part of that is, you know, this is going to sound strange, but you only had at that time people who had access to, you know, year-round or snow. Like, so you didn't have any, like Scandinavia, it was very difficult for them to have the same amount of on-snow time as someone that was from the Alps. There was a real disparity in who had access to snow in a way that, you don't have today. Everyone is trained to within an inch of their life now because they're training all year round. Just the simple fact that you've got high-speed lifts. And so you can take twice as many runs in a day, making it, you know, the level of competition has absolutely gotten deeper. And as it's gotten deeper, it's gotten harder to compete across all disciplines. So while Keeley may have been able to do it, that test was never taken. And we also don't know whether or not he would have had the endurance to do what Lindsey Vaughn and Mark Giardelli have done with their career. And, and in my, you know, I have a hard time parsing between who is the best of all time without saying, you know, gender, right? right? Because you just, there's not enough comparisons on the women's side um, and on the men's side, I think, to make a clean, like, here's who the best skier of all time is. But I do believe that Lindsey Vaughn the greatest skier of all time, even if Moser Prohl, as Giardelli pointed out, would have had more wins. Now, I have no doubt that's the case if she were to have Super G um, at the time that she was racing. But she didn't have to go through the injuries the way Vaughn did. And there is no doubt in my mind that the sport right now takes a greater toll on your body, even if you don't have an injury, a crash, an injury that takes you out for a year. And so... Prohl didn't have the opportunity to go against the demands of the sport. Now, could she have? Quite likely. But Vaughn has passed the test that is modern, and I think the modern test is the greatest. Uh, it asks the most of any athlete. I think the sport continues to ask more and more of the athletes. And right now, because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, Vaughn has passed more of those tests than anyone I have seen in the history of the sport, or I can think of, and I would say the same of Mark Giardelli. So your one and two are my one and one. Gotcha. You know, I think that um, I agree. You know, it's part of what I put into the evaluation in, in doing that list. Um, after I did the list, I had um, the chance to talk to Lindsay's father, and he and I asked him what it was like to, or we asked him what it was like to sort of pursue Lindsay's, I mean, to pursue Stenmark's record. And he said the thing that people forget is how hard it's such a marathon. These, the number of 77 at the time, now 78, is, 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 is such a long, long haul to get there. And coming back from injury after injury, especially in the last few years for her, um, has been extremely difficult. And to maintain that motivation and to stay on track through all of that is really hard, especially when you're coming back against athletes who are so highly trained themselves. It's not like she's she can come back and just because she works really hard, she's going to be on top. She's going up against people who ski and train as much and as hard as she does. Now, maybe she takes a little bit further in terms of her training, but the point remains the same, that she is going up against these super, super um, athletes who do not take a day off like, like she doesn't. Right. And so with that, we transition now into what's going to happen going forward. Lindsey Vaughn, 
wins the uh, Super G in Val d'Isere as of this podcast. She has tweeted that she is going home because her knee was hurting her. That should not sound as alarming as it does because she had planned on going home on Monday rather than Sunday to take some time off, train at home, and then come back for the next speed races, which aren't until, I believe, the 13th of January. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, But one thing I did want to touch on was what you started out the podcast with, which was Michaela Schifrin. And I made the point after she won the downhill saying she has the ability to win across all disciplines at the Olympic Games. And I contend that she has that ability. The beauty of the Olympic schedule is, and this might have been lost in my 140-word tweet, is that the way it lays out is like no other time before. The technical events are at the front end, and the speed is at the back end. If it were the other way around, I don't think Schifrin would take on more than, say, three disciplines, which would be Slalom, Giant Slalom, and the Alpine combined, which I think she is the absolute favorite in. But now there are three downhill training runs that precede the downhill, then another training run, then the Alpine combined. So she, to my knowledge at this point, plans on going in all three of those training runs to prepare for the Alpine combined. If she is fast, I would bet everything I own that she's starting in that downhill. If she doesn't start in the downhill, it might be the first time in the history of the sport that someone has won in the discipline and then opted out of racing in that discipline in the Olympic Games. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but that is my guess. So anyway, that is what I predict for the Olympics is that Schifrin will compete in all four or five disciplines um, but the beauty is she doesn't have to decide until she gets there, and I don't think that she will. I think it's pretty obvious that Team Schifrin uh, isn't targeting a downhill medal. That's not at the <clears throat> forefront of their mind, but I do think that it would be insane for them to not seriously consider it. It, it just seems nuts to me that you can win a World Cup downhill and then you wouldn't at least take a look at it and be like, hmm, when you went to the Olympics. It's not that challenging of a hill. It's pretty technical. There's quite a bit of turning on the hill. So kind of plays to Michaela, Michaela's favor. And to me, it just seems like a huge missed opportunity. At the end of the last Olympics in Sochi, Michaela said something to the effect of, in the next Olympics, I hope that I can be a five-medal threat. And right now, on paper, Michaela Schifrin is a five-medal threat, six if you throw in the team event. And that is hard to pass up. Yeah. And and, And she would be also insane to go public and say, I am racing in the downhill. And she's not going to bring on that kind of pressure. Don't expect it. We won't see her ski another speed event, to my knowledge, until... Cortina, and that is the second-to-last speed event going into the Olympic Games. And that's still in pencil. So I don't think she's going out of her way to prepare for the downhill, but it's on the menu. I have little doubt about that. A little bit of news before we get into our picks. As of today, the German team, which was looking so strong, I, I sort of parsed through some of the stats, but they have, for the first time in their history, and I'm talking about the German men, put a man on a podium in all four disciplines, and I'm talking about Psalm, Giant, Psalm, Super G, and Downhill. A different man on the podium in all four of those disciplines for the first time in their history. They in were one going season. In, in one season. Thank you. And so they were going into the Olympics, a team that no one has ever paid attention to, basically, for the last 15 years, apart from largely Felix Neureiter, with, you know, four medal chances. I mean, granted, they weren't the best chances at speed, but they were chances. Huge for that country. And today, Stefan Lewitz pulls up lame in the first few gates in Alta Badia. He has a torn ACL. Hard to imagine he will try conservative methods that would allow him to compete at the Olympic Games. And at the same time, just yesterday, we learned that Felix Neureiter, who was trying to go the conservative route to see if he could compete in the Olympics, has had surgery. So a huge blow for the German team. 
Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about the Germans <clears throat> this season and how they are suddenly a factor in speed. They've had a, they've been fast in a lot of training runs, um, and then um, they had a win the other day in the Super G, and they are definitely uh, seems like they're a team on the way up. And this is just a bummer. Uh, it's a bummer to to lose Norider, who's one of the most charismatic um, and friendly presences on the World Cup, and then to lose Lewitz today, um, who seemed like he was on the verge of, of a win. I, I kind of yeah, thought I, he might I, win today. Yeah, I think I, I, I agree. And Neureuter won the opening slalom. I, I mean, can you imagine you know a country that loses two skiers like that? I, I you know even in Austria. Uh, doesn't have the ability to lose two stars like that and then feel like they have medal chances come the Olympic Games. No, it's it's definitely, um, yeah, it's just unfortunate. And it's, it's you know, it takes away from the excitement of the Olympics. So it's, it's not fun for us either. Yeah, injury, huge theme this year, which we won't get into, but we will get into our picks for the upcoming races. As of this podcast, what remains in the immediate future are the technical events in Courchevel for the women, along with the parallel event. And then the men go to the iconic Madonna di Campiglio to battle it out in slalom. So give me your uh, your picks. So in the giant slalom at um, Courchevel, I'm going to pick uh, Brignoni to win, Federica Brignoni to win, Michaela in second place, and Marta Bertino in in third the toothless marta bacino yeah i saw her i was actually standing um at the interview position at the finish line with um bodie miller and dan hicks in killington and i saw her walk by with what looked to be a pretty messed up face um she hit her face on something i i didn't see the injury because we were actually working at the time um but she did not look good so it may be a factor. Maybe she's. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it, it's a major factor in terms of injury. But um, yeah, it was. It was. It was kind of. It didn't get a lot of press for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but anyway, I think that it's a good hill for her. Um, I think Brignoni is a good hill for her as well. There's a pretty big turn radius there. Brignoni doesn't have to adjust her turn radius quite as much unless they set tight, um, and she can sort of let it run. An but, artist likes her canvas. Right? Exactly. It's a perfect canvas for her artistry. Um, I think in the slalom, it's going to be Schifrin. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm going on way out on a limb. I, I like to put on a limb. Uh, I think Heim's daughter, I, I, I see her skiing fast. Um, she sort of hasn't been as consistently in the top three as we have expected her in the past, but I just I feel like she's just too good to hold down, or she goes for it every single race, and eventually that's going to pay off, and I think it's this race. And I see Belova in third there. Um, and then for the parallel GS, that's really a tougher thing to predict. Um you know, it's just it doesn't always translate that the best skier wins that event because. Um, oh come on! It's no, a little you, you, no I, I, yeah, okay, all right. It's all yeah. Picks. Get to the picks. Schifrin number one, Ham's daughter number two, Nina Loseth in the third. Why'd spot. you pick Loseth? Loseth's been good in the. She's kind of been good in the last few parallel events that have. She doesn't win them, but she's right up there. So I see her doing well. It hasn't been that season for her yet. Um, but I think that um, we're going to see her up on the podium there. How about you? How do you feel about the women? Um, you know, I, I kind of drew a blank on the slalom there for a second. Uh, so I'm going to go to the GS. The GS, I'll tell you, I'm not picking Tessa Worley, who crashed really hard. I, she was on my list prior today, but in the Super G with the airbag deployed, and she looked kind of – she. Injured her hand. I think she's got shin bangs. She's not going to have enough time to recover. Victoria Rebensberg, who's been on a tear this year, also crashed today. I, I just, for those reasons, I think that Rebensberg has been running hot with all of the speed disciplines. So they are, a lot of the women that were racing in the Super G aren't going to be as crisp as Michaela Schifrin, who went up to Scandinavia to find great skiing conditions off kind of on her own. That's how they like to train. So she is going to be more ready than skiers, than Brignoni, than Goja. So I think she's coming a little fresher, a little more ready. 
so I'm picking Schifrin for the win. Uh, and I think uh, even though I just mentioned that Goja has been skiing all the disciplines, I think she finally got her confidence. Twice on the podium uh, in uh, Super G and Val d'Azere. That's what she needed to turn the corner. And so we're going to see a charging Sofia Goja, and that'll be good enough for a second. And uh, I do like Brignone. And a week ago, I was going to pick her because I think she's perfect for that hill. She just didn't impress me that much uh, in Val d'Azere in the Giant Slums, or excuse me, in the Super G. So that's why I'm putting her third. Um, as far as the parallel goes, um, you know, Schifrin Han's daughter. Uh, here's my here's my wild card because it is unpredictable. Stephanie Bruner. Stephanie Bruner is a really good slalom skier, but she kind of skis it like GS. And I, I hadn't skied her ski slalom before Levy, and she was unbelievably fast in this wide open slalom. And I know she was fast at the world championships in the team event in this discipline. So I'm trying to put those two things together. And so Stephanie Bruner, that's my pick for, for third. As far as the slalom goes, uh, oh, <laughs> we have no idea. Um, Schifrin, uh, Vlova, Hans' daughter. Um, I, I think Hans' daughter right now, unless she's done something with her skiing, she doesn't have the same speed uh, as, as Vlova, and for sure she doesn't have the same speed as Schifrin. Um, but I don't see women's slalom right now being exceedingly deep, so it's kind of hard to get away from those three skiers. Madonna Di Compilio, to the men. I'm going to go uh, out on a huge limb, actually, and put um, Henry Christopherson number one. He's won the last two times in Madonna. Now, there have been some strange factors in Madonna the last couple of seasons, and that is the snow there has not been as hard as other venues. I thought you were going to say drones. Well, drones, drones definitely did fall from the sky um, and almost, <laughs> almost take out Marcel Hirscher. But I think that the snow in the last two seasons in Madonna has been a, a bit strange. There's been this layer of corn on top of a harder surface. And it didn't play well with Marcel Hirscher. I felt like because he brings such direct pressure um, sort of in such a short space that it didn't play well for him. And he seemed to struggle with it a little bit. He also had a fogging problem with his goggles, so let's not even get into that. But um, I just think that Christopherson's had a lot of success there and his confidence is going to be high. Um, I see Hirscher getting second. And then I see um, old man of Italy, Manfred Melg, Mold. Oh. Uh, getting on the podium in third place. Uh, it'd be great to have an Italian on the podium there. It's such an awesome venue. It's kind of wishful thinking. So you think you think that uh, you're calling Christopher Christopherson a, a child of the corn? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I you know I, I want to think that just because Hirscher has been so dominant, I, if I but what he showed recently when he showed in Val d'Isere, there's just like he's kind of come in this part of the year a little slower the last couple of years, and then he's found his pace in January, but he, uh, miraculously, without any training, he just seems to be this monster. So, you know, based on what I've seen so far, he seems indomitable. And then Christofferson there second. I mean, those are kind of easy right now, uh, or obvious, I should say. Stefano Gross, though, beat them both pretty handily in the opening run of Val d'Isere. He, he's one of these skiers that you give him a clean course, he's super fast. Then when you get in a, uh, when it gets a little rougher in the second run, to me, he's a little bit more unpredictable. He's got that, you know, Jean-Claude Keeley <laughs> feet stuck together stance. Uh, so he's a dangerous pick, but he was dangerously fast. So uh, that's my Italian for Alta Badia. I think the one thing that we are overlooking a little bit, and I, I guess I mentioned it with Madonna, but... I think snow is a is is a big factor right now in Europe. I think there's been a ton of it, and those conditions are softer in general than I think the racers have trained on and are used to. And it kind of is a little bit of a wild card um, in terms of what we might see, especially in Courchevel, where they've had I don't know four feet of snow in the last week or some crazy thing. Um, and that. That could play, I think, well for someone like Brignoni, who skis with a little bit more touch. Um, I see touch skiers doing a little bit better um, on some of these softer conditions than um, 
So maybe there might be some wild cards that we don't expect. I'll, I'll take your I'll take your snow factor and raise it one. It also has to do with who has access to the great venues to go prep, because very likely they're going to water inject Madonna, and they'll you know if they get the temperatures they'll get the hard surface. Um, and before we wrap this up, I at least want to mention that you know Ted Ligeti coming on in Giant Slalom, and I think he's shown some ability to certainly podium worthy. I don't think he's got Hirscher's pace, but what stands between him and getting that pace is finding the good training. He wasn't able to get his usual dose of training in whatever little area they call Felders before going to Alta Badia. Um, but if there is soft snow, uh, you know, Ligeti is this guy that he needs the perfect surface. If he can get it, he'll be good. I do know that he is going to go home. So when you come to the U.S., you certainly have better access to having this perfect snow condition. So if you can get the good training uh, and get out away from the snowstorms, I think you end up, sh you show up at these venues with a better chance. And I think if Ligeti gets that, you know, we might see a different man in the next giant psalm coming up in Adelboden, but we'll save that for another time. So that concludes our first episode of Tips and Tales, and with that, a tip of the hat to our good friend and mentor, and the man who owned and ran Ski Racing Magazine for many years, the late Gary Black, who was full of tips and tales, and one of his finest was no pride in authorship, Perino. And so with that, we invite you to leave your comments on SkiRacing.com. I'll read the good ones. I'll definitely read the bad ones. Thanks, Scott. That's how I roll. Thank you.